Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And a quick shout out before we get going. Thank you, Sean, for subscribing over at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. And we hope you enjoy the bonus goodies that come along with your support of the show. Woo! And we have some really big plans for our Patreon subscribers and the funds that they provide for the show. So stay tuned. If you want to learn more about our plans in the monthly newsletter, you can join at any tier. We're getting closer to that 100 patron mark, which first of all, amazing. Y'all are amazing. And when we do, there will be an especially exciting gift coming to all of our subscribers. Okay. Calm down, Anna. Okay. Now get excited. Oh, ah, I'm excited. We're kicking off field season, which is something a little new. And it's a summertime treat in honor of the traditional months for archaeological field work in many corners of the world. So my field seasons were always in the winter because I worked in very, very hot places. Although um, there are plenty of people that work in very, very hot places in the summer. Same, they seem fine. They, they seem to be doing okay. But we're not talking about trenches or sections or other field classics. No, today we're getting a bit more philosophical. And we're discussing the concept of phenomenology which is the use of sensory experience as a tool for seeing and interpreting an archaeological site or landscape. Before we go out and stand in a field to see what we can see, smell, and hear, let's talk about why phenomenology came about and how it was revolutionary. So phenomenology looks at phenomena. Do, 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 do. No. Anyway. No, I just wanted to do that. Okay. So we can't fit an entire course on the history of archaeology into one episode, nor can we recap all of a 732-page textbook. Shout out to Bruce Trigger. Woof. But what we can do is give you a dash of history with regard to its development. Archaeology as a discipline has its roots in antiquarianism, collecting and appreciating art and objects from the past, mostly the province of wealthy people. In the 19th century, European and American enthusiasts of the past elevated their treasure-hunting game by digging into mounds, recording plans of buildings, and setting about translating texts that they uncovered in an attempt to figure out what had happened. More often than not, what they found and how they interpreted it was colored by the biblical or classical texts that they had set out to prove in the first place. It's nice that that worked out like that. Yeah. Amazing. Gradually, and thanks to the development of geology as a science and development of the theory of evolution, archaeology grew into a systematized discipline, and archaeologists began to establish chronologies, identify ceramic typologies, and develop theories about what happened when. 
For these archaeologists, the best we could hope for is to record, catalog, and categorize bits of material culture left behind, because any context or insight about the people who made it is lost once the object entered the archaeological record. This was the cultural historical model, which saw ceramic cultures as stand-ins for human populations, considered technologies or styles to have spread via diffusion, migration, or invasion, and was co-opted by nationalist causes. By the 1960s, there was a hot new framework in town known as New Archaeology. It allied itself with anthropology more than with history, and positioned its style of research as less about having answers and more about asking questions. It's better known today, since it stopped being new, as processual archaeology, which reinforces the importance of the scientific method and establishing context. After a few decades of radical changes in how archaeological research was done, critical voices grew louder and more numerous. To those people, processual archaeology, along with the emphasis it placed on unbiased observations and objectivity, was built on a faulty premise— how do we account for other factors like identity, social relations, human agency? From among the critics that felt this approach was rooted in environmental determinism and societies and their development were shaped largely by their physical environment, not internal or interpersonal factors, there came a new wave, post-processualism. Post-processual archaeology didn't ask the discipline to throw out processual archaeology and its beloved scientific method, although I'm I know that there were like exceptional cases that did. Sure. Um, but, but instead it sought to find ways that we might be able to access the hazier aspects of the past that made people, well, people. So what were their values? What were the stories they told themselves and their children? What was their relationship to their environment outside of purely economical purposes? What were they doing when they weren't being pots? Well, and it's like the, um, yeah, it's, it's just something that processual archaeology was very interested in looking at economics. Mm -hmm. and There's more to human and there's existence more to, than that. Yeah, and, and so looking at sort of the products of labor. And so post-processual archaeology was saying like, well, there's a lot of other things going on in our <laughs> experience and existence. Um, and so there are several aspects and schools of post-processual thought, but today, as the, the title suggests, we're focusing on phenomenology, which was first formally introduced to archaeology by Christopher Tilley in his 1994 book, A Phenomenology of Landscape. Um, quick fact about me, when I was in grad school and we had our History of Anthropology course, we did a debate where we each were expected to inhabit the role of a theorist. Ah, yes. And I was Chris Tilly. How'd so you do? I, I guess I did okay, but I showed up in a raincoat. Did, was he famous for? No, I mean he he works in the landscape in Britain, and so oh, I felt that, it like, rainy. I, so I just like showed up in my raincoat and was like. Yes, but... Hello, governor. <laughs> no, I didn't do that. Okay. So he drew from the work of philosophers like Maurice Merleau-Ponty, who argue that we, as individual humans, aren't just in the world, we're a part of it. And that perception is something different from knowledge. So, you know, there's a difference between perception and the perceived. And so uh, Merleau-Ponty wrote that sensing is a, quote, living communication with the world that makes it present to us as the familiar place of our life, um, end quote. So we, th we think about what we perceive and not our perception of it, because the act of perceiving 
We, we sort just, of, we just do it. The act of perceiving lends itself to the perceived. It's, it's yeah. easy to get distracted by that. Right. Um, and to take that in as like, that is what is real. Um, but, uh, we just kind of take perception as given, but to the phenomenologically inclined, the act of perceiving is valuable in its own right. So phenomenology, as a result, focuses its attention on the body, movement, and sensation. It's frequently criticized for being like touchy-feely or woo, but um, and admittedly, some of the methods employed can be a bit silly. One to some, yeah. I, um, mm-hmm. I've I've read a lot of Christopher Tilley's work, and <laughs> so some of the stuff that they do is just like cool, uh, trying stuff out. Yeah, um, but if we were to accept that. If, if we are to accept that we are trying to come closer to understanding people in the past, which many people argue is the point of archaeology. It's um, been said, yeah. We need to think of them as people with bodies and senses and not just colored blobs across maps to show distribution of technologies or ceramic styles. Yeah, like think about how you exist and perceive in the world. There's no reason to think that people in the past didn't exist with the same types of perception that you did. Yeah. They could see their world. They can smell their world. They can, I mean, for the most part. And, and they had emotional, um, and, and there were emotions that came with these They responded and they to. they had memories. Yeah, and they have, exactly. Yeah. And so to quote Matthew Johnson in Archaeological Theory, An Introduction, which is another How many great, pages is that book? No, that's a shorter book. Okay. But, um, it's, um, uh, it's, it, Handle it de- tackles a lot more like post processual theory, okay. um, but it's another great textbook on archaeological theory. And he says, um, "Quote for all its reputation as an obscure and esoteric philosophy, phenomenology directs the attention of archaeologists to aspects of experience which are arguably both accessible and observable. What objects and landscapes look like, the sensations of touch." taste, and smell are, on the face of it, things that can be talked about quite readily by archaeologists. Archaeologists do not dig up factional competition or differential access to resources or the rise of the Roman Empire. These processes are actually quite indirectly inferred from the evidence that we have. On the other hand, we do know how dark it is inside a Neolithic chambered tomb. Very we can experience how tra- sound travels or fails to travel between different spaces or how difficult it is to climb to the top of a castle wall. Very. End quote. Since its introduction, phenomenology has seen a lot of criticism, primarily those who view it as subjective and untestable. Like, how do you capture data on dark or like bad vibes? What kind of data point is stinky? Uh, but when used as a complement to other forms of inquiry because remember um, despite how it may come across as you're like reading about the history of theory it isn't like everybody is just like oh gosh it's post-processual already like time to switch people um that you know you you take what works do you take what's helpful and you leave what isn't uh when you're putting together when you are informing your methods. Yeah, and, and processual and post-processual approaches are by no means mutually exclusive. No. You can incorporate both into the types of questions that you want to ask based on the materials that you're looking at. And arguably, you should. Yeah, well. Mm. Uh, to, to do a comment, because you, you need to have data, but you also need to recognize that you as the observer are not an objective sieve right. through which information passes. Right, and, and nuance is good. Yeah. So, 
when used as a compliment to other forms of inquiry <laughs> and as a reminder that we bring our own assumptions and perceptions to everything we encounter, no matter how much we try not to, phenomenology is a pretty great tool to keep in your toolbox. Yeah, I can't think as anyone else. I can only think and process the world as me. Yeah. So Chris Tilley's research in Neolithic Britain and elsewhere his um, raincoat. <laughs> focuses on the landscape and monumentality. So his work is in conversation with that of other people studying the Neolithic, which had long been understood as an economic shift by those of, of a processual bent, because they're starting domestication, they're starting agriculture, these technologies are spreading. And there's material evidence there's, of that. There's material evidence of that. There's material evidence for intensification and extensification, where you're doing more of something and you have people who have specialized jobs. These are all very economic processes that we're mm-hmm. talking about. Um, but... So as these new agricultural technologies developed, spread, and eventually won out over hunter-gatherer practices, uh, through the lens of phenomenology, we have to ask, what if the Neolithic were the result of an ideological transformation sparked by a so-called domesticating mentality? Perhaps the material culture archaeologists find and attribute to the spread of Neolithic subsistence technologies are better attributable to the spread of a Neolithic mindset. So like a change in how we approach our environment, how we approach one another, and how we approach success. So that happened before the major material shifts? It, 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 or along with it informed the yeah. material shifts because if you're, you're saying like, I want, I, I want I, to settle down. Yeah. Like uh, we, we want to stay here. Mm-hmm. We, we see value in staying in one place. That is, that's a shift in, in mindset. That's a shift in mindset. That's a shift in experience. That's a shift in like societal goals. And so this is something that, um, I think is, is, is revolutionary of, of thinking about people not as the cr- like producers of work and consumers of the yeah. outcomes of work. Yeah. Like people are groups with goals <laughs> and, <laughs> and like dreams and experiences. So, um, that's, that's just sort of an example of, of how it changed. It's like the original, corner of the world that it kind of popped off in. So even though a lot of the work involving an explicitly phenomenological approach is dedicated to Neolithic sites and the landscapes in which they're found in Britain and throughout Europe, we're going to dedicate the rest of this episode to examples from elsewhere in the world and hop around through time. But first, let's take a quick break. And then when we're back, we're going to Japan. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, 
membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. We're back. Yes. And as promised, we're in ancient Japan and we're looking for the Neolithic. This is something that a lot of archaeological inquiry is devoted to because it's a really interesting period, or rather a term that describes a series of cultural and material changes that happen to occur at different times, depending on where you are in the world. Mindset. And mindset. It's a small paradigm shift, thinking about mindset instead of just like cultural change. So when these conversations were happening, there were people that were like, this changes everything. And there were other people who were like, no, it's just sort of more and better. Yeah. It's just like, no, it's just a little, little tweak. Yeah. Because it is, but, but it does open up an entire host of new questions. Right. Which that's the sort of profound part is yeah. that what we can get out of it is much more, a, a much higher resolution picture of human life and lived experience. Yeah. So looking for, and this is going to be a tough word that I'm going to say as infrequently as possible, neolithization. The process of cultural change associated with the Neolithic in any given place. Contextualizing this material process in the framework of cultural landscape research is the focus of this article that, that we're going to be pulling from. And it's an article on Neomap, which is a really cool kind of uh, collection of papers. So Neolithization, the idea of looking for this and the research questions that are kind of being addressed here are why are people making these changes? Who are these people? Meaning does the population change? Is it people coming into a new place with their new stuff and kind of transforming what we see in the material culture of the region? Or is it the existing population of people who decide to do something different? So typically in the Neolithic, what we see, no matter where you are in the world, you tend to see ceramics start Mm -hmm. popping up. And you start to see evidence of a more sedentary lifestyle. And so, quoting from the article, many of these forager communities were abandoning a more mobile existence and becoming increasingly sedentary. Hunting, fishing, and gathering strategies were being supplemented by greater reliance on domesticated plants and animals. I'm just going to interject here and say, or just managed plants Mm -hmm. and animals. Uh, And many of these transitional economies were eventually replaced by full-scale reliance on agro-pastoral farming as the primary mode of subsistence. So, so far, this is very, this is processual. This is like looking at the material and kind of figuring out what changes are taking place on a very economic level. And so we see the introduction of specialist trades like ceramicist or artisan, where no longer does everyone need to hunt and gather to support the community, but rather a certain section of the community can focus on growing food or, or maintaining animals or plants, however they're, however they're doing it, fishing, farming. And then other people in turn are supported by the people who are dealing with the food and they can spend their time making ceramics or making, you know, ritual items. And so, The European Neolithic has been studied quite a lot, but in Asia, the process is less well understood. And so what these authors are trying to do is 
um, better understand the underpinnings of European Neolithic culture and material change and applying it to the context of Japanese prehistory. So I'm going to quote from the paper here. The exceptionally well-studied European Neolithization process is commonly presented as a somewhat self-contained and rather exceptional cultural development. For example, it is understood to have its own distinctive character, content, and internal logic, which together determine the basic sequence and outcome of events. Mobile foragers are either swept aside by a wave of agricultural migrants or themselves eventually become farmers. As part of this transformation, all the other main Neolithic attributes, such as pottery, polished stone tools, and settled village life are either spread by colonizing populations or adopted locally by indigenous foragers. Together, these developments lead to major shifts in social life, culminating in the rise of a new kind of Neolithic cultural landscape. In fact, this general explanatory framework the processual one, actually conceals several more deeply held assumptions about the basic source and logical sequence of developments. Yes, foragers inevitably became farmers. Yes, the combined package of pottery, farming, and village life was central to the spread of a new set of fully Neolithic lifeways. But did it have to be this particular way? Could other kinds of historical trajectory have emerged in Europe? In other words, a growing problem within European Neolithic studies is that this general narrative structure is now so widely accepted that it has moved beyond scope for any kind of deeper critical examination. End quote. So... There could be other reasons. Mm. People might have just been like, I am tired of migrating. Yeah. Tired of following those like, herds. You know, we'll we'll leave as soon as we run out of food over here. And then and it turns out, like, oh, this, this is- place is great. Yeah. <laughs> Let's stay. Combining social theory with traditional material analysis, so that's the processual stuff, within broader landscapes. Um, so sticking less within the regional and looking at a zoomed out scale, um, these, these researchers want to have a more nuanced understanding of the actual human experiences of a population. And so they introduced this concept called a routine scape, which I love. Mm -hmm. This is using the archaeological record to understand the daily or seasonal tasks that people were performing at a site. So this can be done at multiple scales in both time and space. So you can understand what a daily person's life was like, like what their mm-hmm. daily routine was, or how overall a population kind of um, re- uh, responded to seasonal change, responded to, uh, for example, like a monsoon season, things mm-hmm. like that. So, and you can look at that within the smaller level of a single site or multiple sites within a region. And so in this case, they're looking at uh, farming rice in Japan. So this is the, the Yayoi period, which is typified by paddy rice farming. And it's around a thousand years ago to, uh, I'm sorry. It's around a thousand, uh, years BCE to the third century CE. So quite a long period of time. Yeah. So we had talked about the Jomon period a little bit in preceded our, that. Yeah. So the Jomon period gives way to the, Yayoi period, and mm-hmm. that scene is sort of the Neolithic horizon. Yeah, the the Neolithization yeah. period of Japan. So if you are interested in that, we have a two-part episode on Japan and the sort of prehistory and archaeology of, of Japan. Check that out, thedirtpod.com. Okay, so quoting from this article, by combining data on archaeobotany, architecture, 
settlement systems, and iconography, the NeoMap project was able to examine how shifts in plant storage and processing routines were closely linked to the entrenchment of social stratification during the latter half of the Yayoi period. When you have a hunter-gatherer society, the understanding is that it's generally egalitarian. Once you have a sedentary society, there become social aspects like access to resources that naturally kind of form a framework for social stratification. So although evidence for differences in social status have been identified in the Jomon period, there appears to have been a fundamental shift in social organization by the end of the Yayoi. Neomap's main argument was that the introduction of paddy rice agriculture eventually led to the formation of a new kind of management system for subsistence-related routines, all of which required a deeper shift in the perception of plant foods, but also triggered the eventual formation of a new type of elite, able to monitor and control the new rice farming routinescape. And so they have a really cool diagram in this paper that kind of integrates the daily and then seasonal routines. So daily routines involve processing the rice. So you have to sort of pound it to get the husks off. You have to wash it, you cook it, you eat it. Um, and then seasonal routines involve farming the rice. So it's like the types of labor involved, the, the actual experience of labor that's involved that you, where you would see how differential access to being the person who's farming the rice versus the person who is overseeing that farming, differential access to those resources and labor uh, would kind of engender uh, social stratification. Mm -hmm. hmm. And so what they did was compared six sites in East Asia using this framework. So each site is the subject of a comparable case study paper. These are six separate papers kind of published as this compilation. And so to, to sum up, they say, quote, this tightly integrated collection of papers employs a range of complementary approaches and perspectives as shared points of departure to explore how Holocene cultural landscapes across East Asia were impacted both both physically and cognitively, as local communities participated in a wide range of economic, social, ideological, and technological transformations. That's end quote. So it's a shift in how people organized themselves, mm -hmm. but also just a shift in how they lived their days. Mm -hmm. So that's a really neat kind of combination of approaches. Again, with a very sort of slight shift in the framework of, of understanding, they're still looking at the material culture. They're mm -hmm. still looking at the botanical remains. They're still looking at ceramics, but they're using that data, those data, to, <laughs> they're using those data to, to get at a more nuanced look uh, at lived experience. Yeah. Yeah. And so I wanted to start out our sort of exploration of case studies with something on the Neolithic, um, but a Neolithic somewhere else. Yeah. Um, and, and so I, I thought that the ne I, I thought that the Neomat project is a great sort of entry point to sort of phenomenology in the wild. Yeah. We're going to get gradually slightly weirder in this episode. <laughs> Not in terms of like the, the studies are all really cool, but in terms of the sort of touchy feeliness. And I'm not saying that 
disparagingly at all. Like I think it's really important to try to get at physical experiences. Yeah. But in terms of the physicality and the touchy feeliness, I think I think, I think physicality is fine. A, I is won't. A better- <laughs> yeah. Fine. The physicality of these case studies uh, and the the intimacy of the lived experience that yeah. we're looking at is going to increase as we because we're go through looking the episode. at perceiving exactly. And so this is um, perceive me. Please, please do not perceive me. <laughs> uh, so um, now let's um, let's get sensual. <laughs> so we're going to head downtown, Great. and by that I mean downtown Chaco, uh, by way of a 2018 research paper by David Witt and Christy Primo, published in the journal Acoustics. So, published in the journal Unplugged. <laughs> It's titled Performance Space, Political Theater, and Audibility in Downtown Chaco. So um, Chaco Canyon is in what is today New Mexico in the United States. Uh, it was the center of an ancestral Puebloan polity from approximately 850 to 1140 CE. So we've talked about um, ancestral Puebloan. Mm-hmm. Um, an early episode. In an early, early episode. So find that on our website. It's like 15 or yeah. something. <laughs> early. And so it was home to a dozen palatial structures known as great houses and scores of ritual structures called great kivas. The largest great house, Pueblo Bonito, um, which is, you know, downtown Chaco, <laughs> the historic <laughs> district. Um, <laughs> which was thought to be the focus of the site in terms of city planning, served as an open-air performance space for both political theater and sacred ritual. So just a quick note that kivas were sacred spaces, um, and they're usually partially underground structures of various si- varying sizes, and only certain portions of the population were allowed in them. So put a pin in that. It's important. It's important. Yeah, I've been in a, a replica of a kiva um, in New Mexico. And it was really cool. You have to climb a ladder down into it. There's like mm. a, a, not a trap door cause there's no cover, but there's an opening that you have to climb down. And then it's this very dark, cool circular structure hmm. with a uh, sort of bench seating all along the, the outer edge. It was neat. Neat. I probably wouldn't have been allowed in an actual key. Yeah. yeah. That's fine. Yeah, that was neat. So the authors of this paper do something called sound shed analysis. So a sound shed is a shed where teens go to practice their electric guitars. No, 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 no. Sound shed analysis is an analysis of space in terms of how sound would travel. So a similar form of mapping a landscape is view shed analysis, where you can set a fixed point on a landscape and investigate what you could see from that point. And we discussed view shed analysis in our episode. Um, this episode is revolting. Oh, yeah. Talking yeah, yeah. about the ch- uh, changes that um, slaveholders made in the environment. After to, a major slave revolt. Yeah, yeah. to quell rebellion. Yep. Um, so quoting from this article though, uh, quote, archaeoacoustics is the study of the evidence of sound in the archaeological record. This can be achieved by studying the acoustical properties of art, artifacts, sites, or landscapes. An important method for understanding past people and cultures, archaeoacoustics provides an integral, albeit often ignored, component of the human experience. Our tools model the extent to which sounds, including those originating from the human voice and musical instruments, can be heard throughout the wider landscape. We hypothesize Chaco and elites to be practiced orators, able to speak for extended periods with a raised voice. 
I'm like yelling. For example, the historic Zuni, a Puebloan group, maintained a priest of the sun, whose title, Pequen, means literally speaking place. It's at the solstices that the sun is celebrated with great public ceremonies. In the winter, the public ceremonies are opened by the Pequen's announcement made from a housetop at dawn. A bit like a call to prayer. Yeah. Similar idea and similar kind of the idea of a religious leader or political leader like projecting off of a raised point mm-hmm. in the in the city landscape. Yeah. So um rounding out that quote, within the American Southwest, musical instruments have been recovered from the pre-Hispanic period. These include bone flutes and whistles, wooden planks, um, i.e. foot drums, copper bells, and conch shell trumpets. Yeah, we say conch, right? I don't know what we say. I never remember it, whether it's conch or conch. I think it's conch. End quote. The researchers tested different types of sounds in a computer model version of the Chaco landscape using software that assumed that sound travels through the air in straight line paths, which it does, but, you know, in waves. Um, And this model didn't incorporate that, but the authors do address it. The model also didn't incorporate things like reverberation because that required more processing power than they were able to use. (laughs) Fair enough. So to prevent their computers from having total meltdowns while running the model, they kept it simplified. Which I can very much appreciate. Just like, please, please keep this simple. The team specifically tested platform mounds at Chaco. So earthen structures that were constructed during the height of the inhabited period at Chaco. So that would have been probably sometime between 1040 and 1100 CE, and which were about three to four meters in height. So I'm quoting again. Our scenarios were modeled at this location because the platform mounds were earthen architecture that were intentionally built. These mounds were important and may have served as performance stages, similar to Mesoamerican pyramids and Hohokam platforms. Ruth Van Dyke, another Chaco researcher, but not an author on this paper, states, quote, quote, Uh, standing atop them with the great house and the north face of Chaco Canyon towering behind, ritual leaders would have been a very impressive sight. Ceremonies performed atop the mounds would have been highly visible to masses of people who perhaps did not have access into the great house itself, end quote. So there's that pin. Yeah. That pin about not only certain members of the population would have been allowed in. It's essentially like council houses or like where... Either ritual, it was either a ritual space or a political space, but either way, it was a subsection of the population that would have been allowed in it. And the article has a great photo of uh, Pueblo Bonito, which is the main platform. And it also just says, man, for scale. And it's just got a picture of a guy in like shorts and a t-shirt just standing there like, yep, here I am. I'm for scale. The researchers took recordings of a human voice, figured out the hertz of it so the the loudness of the the wavelength and the frequency okay. and then used those data to to model within a landscape how that sound would travel from a a speaker or a trumpet player placed right smack in the middle of the uh, Pueblo Bonito mound so they do- did all of this in a model they didn't go out no. with like a well i assume they took readings of real human voices and real conch conch trumpets but not, no, they didn't stand farther and farther away from and the mound until, yeah, yeah, no, that, yeah. I don't think they did that. Uh, okay, great. And so in, in both cases, uh, both the case of the elite orator and the conch 
<laughs> trumpet. Um, so in both cases, the sound traveled for significant distances and the speaker or trumpeter could have been heard over a good deal of ambient noise. Because remember, this was a pretty densely occupied place where, you know, life stuff was happening. Yeah. The kids screaming, dogs barking, birds chirping, the bustle of a marketplace. Chaco, a city on the grow. So the authors conclude, quote, while the platform mounds at Pueblo Bonito imply aspects of political theater and public performance, placing those features into a context of landscape archaeoacoustics highlights just how important a role they played within Chacoan society and culture. The mounds were constructed in an ideal location to service the stage for political theater that would have been observed by all within downtown Chaco and perhaps further afield. Yeah, because remember, like, the walls of the city, the, mm-hmm. the cave walls of the city kind of loom up behind the mound. It would yeah. have been very dramatic. Um, their construction was an act of public performance, indicating that both elite and non-elite individuals participated in the creation of that stage and its resulting sound shed. Neat. Yeah. Yeah. And since we are talking about soundscapes, I wanted to mention one more cool case of sounds of the past, uh, this time from the world of the Maya. So let us investigate the mystery of the chirping pyramids, courtesy of an article in Nature. I'm going to be both quoting and paraphrasing here. Nico de Clerc of Gant University and his colleagues have shown how sound waves ricocheting around the tiered steps of the El Castillo Pyramid at the Mayan ruin of Chichen Itza near Cancun in Mexico create sounds that mimic the chirp of a bird and the patter of raindrops. The bird call effect, which resembles the warble of the Mexican quetzal bird, a sacred animal in Mayan culture, was first recognized by California-based acoustic engineer David Lubman in 1998. The chirp can be triggered by a hand clap made at the base of the staircase. So like the echo sounds like mm-hmm. a quetzal going chirpy chirp. Hmm. But did the pyramid's architects know exactly what they were doing? De Klerk's calculations show that although there is evidence that they engineered the pyramid to produce surprising sounds, they probably couldn't have predicted exactly what they would resemble. So that engineer, David Lubman, was at first convinced that the pyramid builders did create the bird chirp effect intentionally, although de Klerk and his colleagues aren't convinced. Analysis of the pyramid's acoustics show that the sound created by resonance and echoes totally depends on the initial sound. A clap, for example, makes a chirp, but a drum or the noise of feet climbing the stairs makes a totally different echo. De Clerc noticed when he heard the sound of visitors climbing the temple stairs, the echo sounded like rain falling into a bucket of water. So maybe this, and not the Quetzal chirp, could have been the aim of El Castillo's acoustic design. The rain god did play an extremely important part in Maya culture, so it may not be a coincidence. But then again, it may be. It's difficult to get at interpretations behind features that may or may not have been intentional. Ultimately, it's nearly impossible to prove that any specific echo effect at El Castillo is intentional. And de Klerk says, quote, either you believe it or you don't, end quote. He himself is now skeptical of that Quetzal theory, not least because he has now heard similar effects produced by staircases at other religious sites. At Kataragama in Sri Lanka, for example, a hand clap by a staircase leading down to the Menikganga River produces an echo in response that resembles the quacking of ducks. So who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Maybe there are also just like ducks at the end of that staircase and they're like, what? Who's clapping? Yeah, because, you know, the duck quack doesn't echo. 
Yes, it does. That's a myth. I know it's a myth. I know, like, but I want, I want. How is it? I mean, and if you think about it for a second. How could it not? How? It's a sound. It's a sound. Yeah. So if you bring a duck into a cathedral, get it to quack, it's going to echo. Anyway, let's have an ad. Let's have an ad. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop, and click on the link. Welcome, Quack. Welcome, Quack. So our next stop is in Australia, and a case in which researchers are working toward better ways to record and present landscapes that hold value in the past and continue to evolve. Uh, so authors Annie Ross and Jaden Thomas wrote in the Journal of Social Archaeology about the site of Gumanguru in what's now southeast Queensland. Um, and their work towards creating a record of the space that adequately reflects and contextualizes it. So Guminguru is located just north of Toowoomba in the Darling Downs uh, and was originally a secret male sacred, sorry, it was originally a secret sacred male initiation site. People would travel to Guminguru en route to the Triennial Bunya Mountains Festival, which was really was just like critically important to intergroup relations with things like finding partners, resolving conflicts, and also the access to food resources. As part of their initiation at Gumanguru, initiates were assigned totems, known as yuris, in, in this part of Australia. And the motifs that make up this complex stone arrangement there at Gumanguru uh, reflect many of those totems, such as like a turtle, a carpet snake, um, an emu, a bunya nut, and a catfish. It's a carpet snake. A carpet snake is a specific type of snake that... Is it flat? Is it very flat? Not really. Does it slither along with lots of its friends in a in a snake carpet? No. Huh. I mean, they're like a little... Uh, they probably were found in carpets. Oh, no. They're... I mean, they're okay. terrifying looking. Alrighty. They're... I'll menacing. Google later. Yeah. So um, shortly after uh, European colonizers arrived, use of Guminguru was interrupted and then stopped. So the Aboriginal community in the area were able to reconnect to the site beginning in 2000 uh, when control of the site was turned over to Jarrowware traditional custodians. And then in 2008, the property was returned to them. Um, but at that point, uh, there were a few memories of the site still alive among the Jarrowware community, uh, and so new meaning was assigned. And so this is something, like this is a site that would have been used by many groups. Um, so it was, it was important not only to the 
um, ancestors of the current Jarrahware community, but to other people. Yep. Um, and so um, the authors sum it up by saying, quote, Today Gumanguru is a place of reconciliation and education whereby all people can come to learn about Aboriginal heritage. Gumanguru is also a place with special meaning for the Aboriginal community of the Darling Downs. It is a place of renewal of connection to country, of dwelling in the cultural landscape, and of resurrection of past memories, end quote. So um, the senior custodian of Gumanguru is a man named Brian Tobain. And he has spent much of the time since uh, the Jarraway returned to the property in 2000 in reviving the site, both through lifting buried rocks and sort of like turning over and being like, oh, this was part of it and um, revealing past or even creating new motifs. Because, as I said, this is something that they're forming a new relationship with. Right. Um, as a consequence, the site is constantly changing. At one time, uh, the authors say that new rocks were like showing up daily that like, huh. while they were doing this. And so in 2010, the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies, so it's um, ITSIS, uh, funded a project to map the Gumanguru stone arrangement, which is about five hectares. So in that mapping project, they plotted and recorded 9,368 rocks. And many of those rocks um, f- make up the over 20 motifs on the site, along with a range of geometric and non-figurative images. To stress this this need for something um, more dynamic than just a static map that's produced once in 2010 right, cause the, of a living place. The actual space and the people's uh, relationship with it is shifting yeah. constantly. Um, and so in another paper on this project, which I'll also include in the show notes, the authors write, quote, the problem with this technique, of course, is that it only provides a snapshot of the site at the time we documented it. Our map is quite different from the map because they're doing a counter map. So our map is quite different from the map of the site published in 1961 by Bartholomew and Breeden. This map, prepared in 1959, documents only the western part of the site. The eastern extent of the site was not realized at this time, as all the motifs in the east were buried. Our map is clearly an expansion of this 40-year-old depiction of the site. Nevertheless, it was out of the date on the day we finished the (laughs) work. (laughs) On that day, Brian Tobain came uh, came out to visit and asked how many rocks. 9,368, we replied. And then Brian said, I bet you didn't find those four rocks at the far end I dug up yesterday, did you? Of course we hadn't, and we weren't about to go find them because we had already packed up. (laughs) So that was for the the 2010 uh, project, mapping project. And so these authors uh, and their work takes a position of looking at living heritage and that... um, Sites in flux. Places don't exist places happen. Mm-hmm. And so this is where you get the theory, like the philosophical angle here, because if you make a map, you fix, you fix a place in, in time. And in so space. that place only exists at one past moment in the time, in, in time. And so if you are fixing a site in a recording or on a map, you're sort of fossilizing it and you're making it unchanging. But when we are in a place when we are in a landscape, when we are at a site, there is much more happening in that 
location than whatever like physical features are around you at that point in time. Um, and so they, uh, they, the author subscribed to an idea that places happen because Which I love because you don't. So if you go to, if you go to a park, you're not just going to the place that Siri sent you on maps. You're going to a place that has a relationship to your home where you started with the drive there, like the commute, what you see and what, what happens you see to you there, on the drive. Something yeah. that happened five years before to you there. Like maybe this is a, a, a park that you loved as a child. Perhaps this is a park where <laughs> five years ago when I was a child. Yes. Well, the, perhaps this is a, a park that, um, you, some parks have very different characters at night today. Yep. And so it has a relationship to all the other social factors. So places happen. They aren't just dots on the landscape. And so that's something that we, we talked about in the Neomap project. Yeah. And, and of, seasonally, like a park might feel different in the summer than the winter. Exactly. It, it's, you know, a park is, is different. You go sledding in the winter. And, yeah. So. Yeah. What the authors in, in an attempt to capture how Gaminguru happens, they created a counter map in Prezi. Um, and Prezi is like a presentation software. Yeah. And you can, and I'll include a link to it in the, in the show notes so that you can go and look at it. And so it's a, um, it's a map. It's a map of Australia. And then you zoom in and then it, it sort of moves you around. So you see, so you learn about the importance of the bunya nut and the bunya tree. You learn why like it matters about this. You see, um, they, they highlight motifs both with photos from your perspective, standing and looking out at them, um, at, you know, like average human height. Um, and they, they move around, they show the other, ceremonial sites. They give a sense of the larger community of individuals who use it. And so they, um, they describe this, the authors describe this, uh, counter map, um, as such. <clears throat> the key difference between conventional maps and counter maps is that counter maps take account of the complex interactions between people and the socialized geography that frames people's ontology. So that's their reality. While conventional maps do not. The advantage of the counter map presented here is that it not only situates Gumanguru in its social and cultural landscape, it also provides a sense of movement through that landscape, a sense of journeying, uh, a sense of journeying through the past into the present via something that Har another author Harrison describes as story trekking so rather than storytelling. Yeah, no, uh, I like that. The Prezi allows the viewer to move through the landscape and pause at significant places along the pathway to the Bunya Mountains in simulation of the actions of the Aboriginal traveler in ancient times and as some Aboriginal people aspire to do today in, recre in recreations of the ceremonial journey to the Bunya gatherings. The Prezi map is also able to show the present-day narrative of the Gumanguru site by Jarawir custodians and other places to which they hold attachment today. And so it's something that isn't fixed. Right. They 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 update it anytime one of the custodians what, what anytime the custodians decide that it needs to be updated. Mm -hmm. So it's something that is reflective of experience. Uh, I hope that this approach gets applied to a lot more sites because a lot there's in all over the world there's sites like this where where th where places happen and yeah 
yeah, I, I just, I think that's a really cool approach. Uh, so we've covered sights and sounds. So now you know Let's it's time for there. smells. Yes, Amber did a, a clever wordplay with the word sights. Ah, uh, the audio medium. It works so well for my homonyms, homophones. No, we're doing a homonym episode later in the okay, month. Okay, well, it's my homophone. <laughs> Homonym joke. So what did the past smell like? <laughs> Normally, we'd just say, probably bad, and move on. But that's not fair to the past. There was a whole world of smells out there, just as there is today, and recapturing what the olfactory experience of someone in the past might have been is a really cool nuance to consider. And so now we're traveling to Alexandria, Egypt, to the catacombs of Qom el-Shukhafa. And this is from a Cornell University master's thesis by Larissa Shipley. And so this this is like Roman period? When is this? This, it would have been, yeah, during the, the period of sort of... Roman influence in Egypt. Okay. But it was it was a place that was important to people for a long time. Okay. The catacombs have been primarily studied for their capacity to showcase the mixing of cultures. No previous study has sought to understand this site as lived by individual humans and experienced by their bodies. We understand the world in a multisensory way. Only by using a multisensory approach can we truly begin to understand how an ancient visitor would have experienced Kolm el Shukafa. What kind of body do the catacombs accommodate? To answer this question, we will explore the space on a corporal level. Corporeal? No. Corporal. Okay. Corporeal is like a... Embodied. Thing that goths say. Yeah, okay, cool. (laughs) Just making sure. Spectral level. Yeah. (laughs) Ghost of the catacombs. Uh, Analyzing how considerations such as the steepness of the stairs... The catacombs' environmental conditions and weathering, room capacity, and light and sound can affect visitors' perception of bodily interaction with the space. And so she really did take air data. Using an anemometer, I took measurements of altitude, humidity, temperature, and airspeed in order to give a more objective description of air quality. So, like, quantifiably Mm -hmm. stuffy. (laughs) Turns out. Dusty. <laughs> Due to the well-preserved nature of the site, we can assume the relative differences between surface air conditions and those within the catacombs are, compla- are comparable to similar conditions in the past. Uh, so she starts off with lots of general description of the tombs. There's lots of uh, photos of the imagery. Um, she describes the stairs, the, the stairs down into the mm-hmm. catacombs. They would have been a bit hard on the knees, especially for someone making multiple trips a day. A little steep. Okay. There's also multiple changes in the flooring material of the catacombs. It goes from uh, rock or or cement to um, alabaster at Ooh. one point, like inlaid, floor inlaid yeah. with ground alabaster shells. And so there would have been a noticeable difference in, in the feeling of the tread underfoot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so she suggests that this would have impacted the pace of visitors as mm-hmm. they walked through. You slow down on that part. And so... Really what I want to get at here is is her analysis of the air quality. So, quoting, At first, the still and dust-filled air is not very noticeable. Over a period of 30 minutes, breathing is not really affected. However, after several days, my lungs started filling with dust, and I started coughing more the longer I stayed there. At one point, I had to take breaks every couple of hours. 
The tomb also contains stagnant water in the lower loculi of the second underground level, not to mention the bottom of the access shaft, the rotunda, and the last third level as a whole. So it's, it's a bit flooded at this point. If long rituals took place in the catacombs on a consistent basis, there were almost certainly health implications, particularly respiratory issues. Conclusion. Dusty catacombs were dusty, even in the past. I'm no longer quoting. And in fact, I'm making light here. But again, the goal is to understand the bodily experience. And this thesis does a really cool job of trying to access every part of the sensory experience of being in this place in context of using it as a place of worship. And you have to think, like, there might be incense in the air as well. Mm-hmm. There might be the light from oil lamps. Are there cats around? Oh. Just speaking about respiratory issues. <laughs> <laughs> So that is going to bring our sensory tour to a close for this week. Yeah. I hope you liked it. I hope that was fun. I had fun. I had fun. Yeah. I like talking about Chris Tilly. Uh, so we'll be back in your ears next week. And your eyes and nose and mouth. No, we won't be, but Something we, want new. You to, we want you to perceive the experience. Yeah. Perceive us next week. Um <laughs> <laughs> with something new and old, which you can find over on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, and wherever else podcasts come from. Yep. And if <laughs> they come from the ether. <laughs> if you miss us before then, you can head over to thedirtpod.com where we have all our back episodes, merch, and more. And you can find us on social media where we post archaeological news stories with upcoming events. Events happen. Yeah, we're going to have some coming up oh gosh it's true uh jokes yep got those uh updates about the podcast Mm -hmm. we we have those and even more and so uh you can find those things over on facebook where we are the dirt podcast on twitter we're at dirt podcast and on instagram we're at the dirt pod yeah and you can write in if you want say hi tell us about an episode that you enjoyed or ask questions or i mean you can tell us about an episode you didn't enjoy if you really want to but you know i mean i don't think we need to ask people to do that they Mm. seem they seem perfectly happy to leave reviews in that direction on their own (laughs) but you can do that at the dirt podcast at gmail.com we love hearing from you yeah and we love you yeah goodbye perceive you later This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.